Simon Gallagher from eSmart Networks. Welcome to The Grid Podcast, your weekly insight into the grid and how it's going to help us to a net zero future. Now, we've had over 600 downloads of the podcast since we launched about three weeks ago, which I'm delighted with. So please do keep subscribing and sharing the podcast. It gives me motivation to keep going. We're going to do something a bit different this week. So in an effort to get some badly needed banter, as people keep telling me, and also to keep things a bit fresh, we are having a guest this week, Brian Murhead, who is one of our grid connection managers here at eSmart Networks, who specializes in getting generation connected to the grid very quickly, which is related to our special subject this week, which is the exciting world of battery storage. I bet you can't wait. So before we talk about batteries in any detail, we need to understand why are we even connecting batteries to the grid? Well, we're connecting batteries to the grid because they provide valuable services to the transmission system, which is 400 kV and 275 kV, and also more increasingly to the distribution network operator. So to understand what these services are they can provide, we do need to understand a bit about the grid and frequency. So the most important services the batteries provide revolve around frequency. So in the UK, our big power stations have got big turbines in them spinning at about three, well, not about exactly 3000 revolutions per minute. And this means that the electricity, the AC electricity they produce is a frequency of 50 Hertz. So in the cables leaving the power station, electricity or the current is flowing back and forward past a fixed point 50 times a second. Every turbine in the country are all connected together via the national grid. So they're actually all locked together. That's why we call it a synchronous grid. The grid is synchronized. All those machines are tied together. So it's very important that the frequency stays at 50 hertz for a number of reasons. We used to say it was important because we had electric clocks. So if the frequency was too fast, the clocks would all get a bit ahead of time. And if the frequency was too slow, the clocks would run a bit slow. And actually, even to this day in National Grid, there's two clocks in the wall in the control room. There's actual time, like the atomic time, and there's system time. And they actually trim the system during the day because if the frequency is running a bit too fast, uh, the system time will get ahead. So they actually keep it. They try and zero it at the end of every day so that the electric clocks aren't running ahead or running behind. But really, we don't have that many electric clocks now. The more important thing is that those big turbines which provide a lot of regeneration, they can only operate within a fairly, fairly narrow window. So if they slow down too much, and that's when the frequency's dropping, eventually they will trip. And if that happens, it makes the situation worse. We'll explore why in a second. And that leads to a blackout. Now, we've never had one in the UK, and we clearly don't want one. So what keeps the frequency in check is the perfect balance of supply and demand of generation and load on the network. So every second of every day, there has to be the exact amount of demand, that's your cooker, that's us using electricity, as there is generation feeding into the network. If we have too much demand, then the frequency will drop. And if it goes too far, there's a risk that we'll have power stations start to trip. And then, of course, the generation situation gets worse, and that's a cascade event. If there's too much generation on the network versus the demand, then the frequency will rise, which is a bad thing as well. So a lot of effort 
goes into finally balancing the demand and the supply. This act of keeping generation and demand in perfect balance is getting tougher. And that's because we have more intermittent generation on the network these days. So back in the day, in the 1960s and 70s and even the 80s, we had big coal-fired power stations, gas-fired power stations, and nuclear. And we could plan around when they come off. So we knew when they were coming off, so we had all their generation arranged to take their place. But now, for example, if the sun drops very quickly, because of so much PV, all of a sudden we will lose a lot of generation on the network. More so for wind, because we have so much wind. Bear in mind, some days wind can be providing 30-40% of our national usage. Then if the wind dies down, all of a sudden we can lose generation and we need something to come on very, very fast. Now, that used to be pumped hydro. We used to use a lot of pumped hydro for very fast acting generation, but gas turbines on spit and reserve can fire up very quickly too. But do we really want gas turbines sitting idling on spinning reserve in case the wind drops? And this is where batteries come in. So batteries are hugely flexible and they're fast. So for example, if the wind drops, a battery can suddenly and, and almost instantaneously start discharging onto the network and that appears as generation and that then supports the frequency. Same thing can happen if a big power station trips and this has happened. Power station trips, we see you know, a thousand megawatt coming off the system, more likely 500. The batteries can leap into action and they can all start discharging and support the frequency so we don't get, we can arrest the fall of frequency. Likewise, on a really sunny day, we might actually have too much generation in the network and we don't want to turn off the PV that's doing a good job. So what we can do in that case is the batteries can be instructed to charge so they can start appearing as demand on the network. And that way we're using that clean electricity, which is much better than switching it off. So there are a couple of examples of how batteries really help with frequency. A national grid system operator, the transmission operator, hold auctions every so often for these services. They used to be called fast frequency response and extremely fast frequency response. The latest iteration is called dynamic containment, where the battery owners get paid a certain amount per megawatt hour to provide this service. And that's quite lucrative. They also, because the battery owners want to maximize their return on investment, they can stack other services on top of, of the main dynamic containment. So they can take part in capacity auctions. Um, so we just recently had the T-4 capacity auction, which is for capacity in four years' time, in the winter in four years' time. And what the capacity auctions are all about is ensuring we have enough generation capacity available. So in the winter, we always need more generation capacity than we're actually using at the peak because... You know, we could have a peak demand of 80 gigawatts. And if our generation capacity was only 80 gigawatts, well, if we had a big power station trip or you know, a big interconnector fail, then we wouldn't have enough generation available. So National Grid pay to have generation available. So the batteries um, got a good price recently. There used to be other services called triads. They have now disappeared. But also now the DNOs have started uh, flexible markets in the local area. So what they are saying is that, for example, we've got this primary substation. We forecast that we've got a, a constraint for the next year where we've got some reinforcement happening, 
but there's a risk we won't have enough transformer capacity to supply the load for the next 18 months. So they procure a battery provider if there's one in the area to support the grid in those peak times so they can earn revenues there. So, so the aim of the game really is the battery operators to stack these different revenue streams. So that's why we have batteries. That's why we're connecting them. We'll now talk about the complexities of connecting these things to the grid. After that, we'll talk about some news as well. This week, we welcome Brian Murhead to the podcast. So Brian has been at eSmart Networks um, for a year now, I think, Brian. Is that right, a year? Uh, coming up on a year. Oh, my goodness, can't believe that. Anyway, so yeah, Brian, just introduce yourself for the for the people who are listening, just a bit about your background and, and what you do, and then I'll I'll find some tedious link into batteries, which is this week's this week's special subject we're going to talk about. So I studied electrical and electronic engineering uh, at university, uh, graduated uh, through the IET Power Academy scholarship scheme, and have spent uh, my career to date up until joining eSmart Networks with one of the UK DNOs. Uh, my DNO experience uh, revolved around largely grid integration and connection of uh, renewables, both small-scale renewables, large-scale, and then more recently, battery storage. Brilliant. All right, so we're going to talk about batteries this week. So um, batteries has been sort of on a bit of a journey, hasn't it? Because back in, I mean, it's only 2016 when it started coming around, really. And, you know, back then, um, EFR and FFR, National Grid's um, solution to frequency response, really drove a lot of interest. And then um, when Ofgem derated the battery, so Ofgem said, you know, the, we're paying for batteries to import into the grid or export. You can only do it for half an hour, so you can't be paid that much. So when that happened, it all sort of died down a bit. But now it seems to be back with an absolute vengeance. So this week we're going to talk about um, not so much the economics of it, but we will touch on that, but more about the challenges of physically connecting these things to the grid. Because one thing, I don't know about you, Brian, but one of the things I find is that um, sometimes developers don't realize the complexity that comes with connecting what is generation and load on the same system. Yeah, so uh, Simon was asking me for ideas for his podcast and it was something I said I spent a lot of my time talking about with, with clients, developers and people across the industry around integrating batteries to the grid, getting batteries connect, connected, co-locating batteries with other technologies such as solar, wind or uh, EV charging. And uh, and then before I knew, I knew it, there was uh, three Amazon boxes at my door with all this uh, podcast mic and, and kit. So, uh, yeah, it'll be an interesting one. And it's one I spend a lot of time, my day to job talking about. <laughs> well, the other thing is you were the, you were one of the, a few people to be fair, but you were the ringleader and you need to have a lot more banter on the podcast. So no, no pressure or anything, but, um, but banter was promised last week. So, um, you're under pressure to deliver that. This is a podcast about all things grid. Uh, <laughs> we're not doing a comedy show just before we go any further. <laughs> Doesn't mean we can't get excited. Anyway, let's let's actually talk about batteries then. So just talk through, Brian, um, the actual process, because it's linked to something called G99, and it's a very regimented process. Bear in mind, we're usually connecting at extra high voltage, usually 33 kV and above. So just talk us through the process to apply to the DNO to get the connection and, and what G99 is and, and some of the, the complexities around that. And the time skills maybe as well, people be interested in? 
So any solar developer will be familiar with the G99 application process. So G99 is obviously an ENA engineering recommendation, which kind of governs connecting uh, renewables or generation to the grid. And uh, battery storage falls in under the same process. Now, one of the key differences you'll find, uh, so G99 has the standard uh, application form that's issued by the Electricity Networks Association. So all the DNOs use the same application form that, that solar developers will be familiar with. One of the key differences with battery storage then is that you also need to fill out all the technical details for your solar farm, but there's also extra technical details for the battery uh, energy storage system. And one of those key details is ramp rates. So your battery energy storage system it's capable of very fast ramping up into export. It's also capable of very fast ramping uh, back into import and switching between the two modes. And it's that te that behavior is very important for the DNO then to understand what behavior and what capability you want your energy storage system to have because that has wide-ranging impacts on their network that they need to study and model out. Yeah, so, I mean, in simple terms, ramp rate is... You're going from full export or part export, so you're you're pumping energy into the network, and then you need to swing e either to zero or worst case swing right the way through to to demand, um, and it's it's the rate that the system can change is of huge um, interest to the DNO, isn't it? Exactly. So you find most batteries connecting are kind of gearing themselves towards providing fast frequency response type services to national grid to the TSO and to do that you need to be able to respond within milliseconds and ramp up really fast so um, typically uh, when we're dealing with storage applications and chatting with the developers they're looking the full power swing within within milliseconds so you could be importing 50 megawatts and going straight to exporting 50 megawatts so that's a 100 megawatt swing hitting the DNO's network in milliseconds and that's what causes all the technical issues. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, thinking about the tap changer on a 1960s 90 MVA grid transformer, how that reacts to a swing of 100 MVA coming at it. Is that is the tap changers? Are they? They're probably the main constraint. Are they more so the relays maybe than the tap changers? So the DNOs have obligations to maintain the voltage level on their networks uh, within certain tolerances, and basically. To help achieve this, there's uh, P28 is the, the relevant technical uh, document to refer to that uh, governs disturbing loads on the on the DNO's networks. Um, so it, it stops people connecting uh, rubbish equipment to the network that's disrupting the voltage and so that mine and your lights aren't flickering on and off all the time or, or, or stuff isn't blowing up, uh, basically. So uh, P28 says that uh, you can't really, f the applicable bit when you're connecting batteries to the grid or, 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 or generation as well, is that you can't cause that instantaneous voltage rise to go beyond th plus or minus 3%. So effectively, when you're swinging your battery from 50, in 50 megawatts import to 50 megawatts export, that, that active power input is going to have a, a, a massive effect on the voltage uh, back at the DNO substation. Now, how the DNO regulates the voltage at their substation, uh, let's say it's a 132 kV to 33 kV substation, 
Uh, the power will be flowing in there at 132 kV, comes out the transformer at 33 kV. Uh, the load will change on that substation continuously throughout the day. And there's basically these things called tap changers on the uh, transformer, which it's 132 to 33 kV, but there'll be little minor variations in that. So that 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 transformer output can vary its voltage uh, by very small increments uh, to keep pace with load. So that as load, load will depre- depress your voltage and that tap changer will react then to correct the voltage as the load profile changes. But those things, as you mentioned, Simon, 1960s transformer, they they react in uh, 30 plus seconds, potentially into minutes. So they're not built to react or, or cope with an ind- instantaneous power swing from a battery energy storage system. And that's where you really find your limitations in the network. Yeah, and these tap changers, I mean, they're, they're not a... They're a they're an electromechanical device. They they're actually physically changing the ratios in the transform. Well, the apparent ratios by changing the where where the cables are connected to basically in the core. So there's a huge amount of energy involved in changing taps. So it's not a it's not a you know it's, it's a complex heavy electromechanical thing. This so it you know it's not a it's not an easy thing to overcome, is it? No, exactly, and and I suppose that's why you know the regulations in in P twenty eight. You know, there's a lot of thought and a lot of time has went in to creating you know regulations around this to protect DNO's networks for that reason. Okay, so um, we'll get back into the the complexities in a second, but going back to our process for for connecting. So we've we've found a site. We want to apply for a fifty megawatt battery, so we need import and export. We found the G99 application form. Generally, most people can't fill it in without some help because it needs all sorts of information like fault levels and swing rates and harmonic details. But we send that in anyway. You know, usually someone, a developer will get someone to help them with that. Goes to the DNO. What's the time scales then for sort of 33 or 132 kV connections, Brian? So effectively, your G99 application submitted to the DNO. They're typical license standard then to return that to you is about 90 days 90 calendar days three months uh you should be getting your offer back now that is contingent upon that application being technically competent so it is really important just as you were saying simon when you're completing that application form that you are filling in all the right data you know the data for the transformers the data for the uh, inverters for, for the the battery energy storage system uh, all those ramp rates and everything else, so that the the DNO can actually competent has the technical competent uh, information to model it out on their network. Yeah, because basically, if they don't have that, they can't run their models properly. So whenever they do issue a connection offer, it's based on what was in the application form. So if that is wrong, um, that could sort of reset your clock ultimately when you go to connect. Yep. And another thing just to be aware of there is uh, when was introduced the A&D fees as well. So um, you are likely to concur upfront assessment and design charges uh, with the DNO as uh, a result of your G99 submission. So just look up the DNO's statement of connection charges, find out what the A&D fees are and yeah, just make sure you're, you're aware of that. Yeah, so A&D fees there, assessment and design fees. So it's basically an application fee. Um, that funds the DNO to 
to model the network out and to come to a sensible answer. It, it used to be free um, until probably two, three years ago now when they come back in to, to try and control the, the more speculative um, applications coming in. Yeah, exactly. So it's just it's worth being aware just for your own budget and purposes. Definitely. Okay, so um, we've got a connection off our back. If well, we just talk now about... Before, before, <laughs> well, before we get there... <laughs> um yeah well i i suppose one of the big things to consider then and it is particularly pertinent a lot of conversations i would have with solar developers where they're talking about co-location of technologies and things and i think one thing you you really need to sit down and consider is like we've we've discussed some of the voltage issues with that power swing that a battery can can put on the network there, there's also the fact that it needs the import capacity as well as the export capacity. So where you're just applying for a straight solar site or, or a wind a wind site, uh, you're really only looking at the thermal generation capacity upstream in the network, where the load capacity and the capacity of that network to provide you with, with power when you want it is a totally different thing and a, and a totally different analysis. So when you're considering battery storage then and you're seeking large amounts of import capacity like let's not forget uh, you know 50 megawatt battery if you're looking 50 megawatts of import uh, how many houses or or factories is that you know that that's that's enormous um like an absolutely ginormous load on the network so there's there's a high high chance you could you're going to trigger network reinforcement there for for load related related reasons and not just simply the generation so this is something you need to sort of sit down and think carefully about or if if you can have you know having a good look at the network or or chatting to somebody who knows about the network beforehand uh to try and get a bit of an idea of well what what might the trigger points be here um what is the network good for in that area so talk to someone like you to model out the network basically <laughs> uh, uh yeah someone <laughs> 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 don't everybody come talk to me <laughs> <laughs> um yeah no it's a good point i mean uh we'll we'll come to them more um technical issues in a bit because really when we want to connect batteries we need to think about thermal capacity in the network so if we're connecting to a tower line has that tower line got the thermal capacity to carry the current in both directions actually um and then the same for the transformers and the upstream network we have to think about voltage rise so um generally with load you know we don't have problems with voltage because the, the load the network was designed more for load on dno networks but if we're putting huge generation on there we we will cause the voltage to rise and that has to be kept within certain limits then there's reverse power flow isn't there um can you just explain reverse power flow back at the the substations and why that's becoming more and more of an issue we're seeing all the time yeah, well, obviously, when you're adding generation downstream of any substation, again, let's, let's use a 132 to 33 substation as an example. Uh, you're connecting generation onto the 33 network. That's going to push power up the 33 kV network into the substation uh, to the point where it's it's going to supply all the demand being fed from that substation and then be pushing power back through the 132, 33 kV transformers back onto the 132 kV network. Uh, those transformers will only be rated to a certain amount of reverse power flow. Um, so that that may be a constraint. 
or even the 132 KV lines feeding those transformers may well be constrained or may not have the headroom uh, to carry the, the power back to their source. Um, and then obviously when you're considering a battery, you have to consider all of this in the other direction uh, and, and the local load that's already on that network and, and how much uh, thermal capacity all those components have to actually carry power from the source to your battery as well as whatever towns or villages are downstream of the line you're connecting into as well. Yeah, and really, I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that the distribution networks, well, all the networks, transmission as well, it was all built mostly in the 50s and 60s, actually. And it was built to move power from huge, big power stations, mostly in the Midlands, to the load centers in the Midlands and the Southeast. But it was all really designed to go one way um, down the network. So the, the transformers were installed only ever considering, you know, energy flowing one way and now we're asking the network for energy to flow both ways at different times of the day so it's incredibly more complex than it was when the network was first designed yeah well distributed generation came on load was flowing the other way but in a relatively stable manner and now batteries are coming on and it's just flowing back and forward at rapid pace and that actually goes as far as reverse power flow on the transmission network so it's fair to say we're seeing um grid bulk supply points where the dnos take their voltage of 132 kv off national grid those super grid transformers that go from 400 kv to 132 we're actually seeing reverse power flow exceeding their thermal limits now as well yes it's it's becoming a quite a topical issue i think across the industry and and the networks at the minute where we're just seeing so much generation coming on. Uh, the transmission networks are struggling to keep up and cope, and the the batteries in the in the middle of that, like huge huge battery projects coming on uh, online or, or in the queue to connect, and the the generation's one problem in itself. You know, coping with all the power going back up the network, and then you've got these huge battery projects in the middle of all this where. They're wanting to push huge amount of power back up the network, but also draw huge amount of power from the network, and this all has to be considered under all these different, you know, different scenarios and and different times of day and and, and everything else. And it's hugely hugely onerous uh, to design the network in a static way to cope with all of this, and we're we're really seeing that now become a, a you know a real pinch point right across the network. Definitely, and just to put it into perspective, I mean. There is a lot of batteries in the pipeline. So as of February 2021, Renewables UK are telling us that there's 16.1 gigawatts in the overall pipeline. Now for, I always think to try and get this into my mind, one of the biggest power stations we have are 2000 megawatts, which is two gigawatts. So that's Radcliffe Power Station is two gigawatts. And we've got 16 gigawatts in the pipeline. Of that 1.1 gigawatts is actually operational it's up and running earning money um, and supporting the network 0.6 gigawatts um, is under construction 8.3 is consented in the planning system and there's further whatever the balance is there but you know there's a huge amount of this coming on and you, you know these technical challenges are only going to get worse as we go through the next couple of years yeah, and I did mention 
one of the sort of words I did say there was it's hugely challenging when you're designing the network in a, in a static way to cope with all of that. So I, th- I think certainly what a lot of the, the networks are now, network companies are now looking at uh, and industries trying to work sort of hand, hand in glove beside them is around, well, batteries shouldn't be this big onerous thing that's causing issues on our grid. The, the whole reason we're bringing batteries on is to s- solve grid issues. Uh, so there's this kind of conundrum at the minute where, well, the batteries are actually triggering a lot of grid issues and huge reinforcements uh, be- because either of their generation capacity or their load capacity. And I know there's a lot of work going on in, in various regions now to try and see, well, actually, how can we integrate battery storage onto the grid in a way that helps the grid? And just a bit, a bit of background behind that. So kind of up until now, certainly my understanding is uh, most of the batteries that have been coming on have all been coming on based on this sort of fast frequency response type service, uh, which is really a service to the TSO, to the transmission system operator. Um, however, obviously there's potential with batteries to help them solve a lot of those distribution network issues. Um, they, they could be helping solve some of those reverse power flow issues uh, down at distribution substations. They could be helping resolve some of those uh, voltage stability issues and various other things. Uh, I suppose the whole issue is around how the DNOs have to treat batteries as when they're connecting and the technical assumptions and studies they have to put around that. They have to consider that the battery might be importing at full load at a peak time. They have to consider that the battery might be exporting at full output at a peak generation time where the load is really small which on the face of it doesn't make a lot of sense. But then the only way to get around that is to put restrictions on the battery that it can't do that. And and that's where you start to come into the commercial realm where, well, that might not actually fit with the developer's commercials if you obviously, if you start to restrict the battery operation at the upfront stage. All right, then. So, I mean, the main technical issues we're talking about here is, is P28. So that's engineering recommendation P28 from the Energy Networks Association, which is basically a standard on how much flicker we can put on the network and voltage fluctuation and disturbance. And that's because the batteries are, are swinging so fast back and forward. We've got voltage rise um, because the batteries are generating on the network. We haven't really talked about much about harmonics, but we I think we're going to do a future podcast just on harmonics. So we'll we'll that, save that fascinating subject that, <laughs> to a later that is a podcast. A later date. That's a podcast all of its own. <laughs> Definitely. We've talked about reverse power flows through the transformers and the issues they have there, and that includes um, the supergrid. So, that, I mean, that is, that's the main technical issues we have with batteries. After that, it's easy. We, we go out there, we dig a load of foundations, we put them down, we connect them up, we commission it, pressure test them, and, and that's it. It's that easy, isn't it? Well, there's a, a <laughs> few more issues after that, to be fair. Uh, so, yeah, we've, we've done our upfront network modeling, We've got our connection offer uh, from the DNO. Uh, we're we're okay from a, a ramp rate perspective, and typically that 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 that's a very good place to be. Um, I I've I've worked with a lot of clients on a lot of prospective battery projects, and and it it is very hard to get them to this stage. The the next stage then when you when you are kind of progressing into that detailed design and, and build out, uh, what I've been coming up against a lot on uh, various battery projects uh, lately 
in particular co-located projects so where your battery is on a solar farm or is co-located with say some ev charging for example the the protection philosophy employed in the network uh often becomes a bit of a sticking point um and uh, w- warrants endless discussion i suppose uh with with uh, dnos and their protection uh, departments uh, and without going into the detail if you think about it if you're designing a solar farm to c- connect to the grid there will be certain certain circumstances where the DNO will need to trip out that solar farm to protect their network. So there might be a, a circumstance where you've got two transformers back at your one three two thirty three kV substation. the The solar farm, when it was designed to be connected, w- was on the basis that if one of those transformers fails, the solar farm will be tripped off to to prevent too much power flowing back through the one transformer that is then left operating. So you do this via operational tripping where there's basically a little automated box in the substation says, oh, we've lost this transformer, send a signal down to the solar farm to trip it off and, and we protect our other transformer and we keep everybody on supply. Now, when you go to do that to trip a battery that is co-located, say with uh, some load, so it might be on an industrial site, it might be with some EV charging, you don't necessarily want to trip off that industrial site or that factory or you don't want to trip off those EV chargers when you're trying to uh, protect the network from too much generation because if you're you want to trip off generation you don't want to trip off load tripping off load is going to exacerbate your issue so again coming up against some things where the standard design for a generation site is just to trip the incoming breaker trip it all off and uh, that that resolves the problem but obviously with a co-located site your your pr- protection philosophy needs rethought through there and you need to just tweak some things uh, around that so batteries are really challenging different standard policies and practices that have been developed across the industry uh through the renewables industry in the last 10 years and that, that's just a bit of an example of of the sorts of things that um uh, crop up it's kind of People probably don't appreciate that uh, so much of how the power system is designed and how it works is all based around assumptions on how things will operate and behave. And that's where the, it's a bit weird, but that's where batteries are a real challenge because we're still working out how they're going to behave. Yeah, well, we haven't the interaction between them and load and, and different forms of generation as well. Um, you know, we're at the we're at the absolute limit of what we can model in our software to try and work out what what will happen sometimes. Exactly, uh, and you you're just getting into endless lists of assumptions and uh, different behaviors and what might happen when when you're trying to build a power flow model. Exactly. So Brian, what would your three main takeaway points or your three main pieces of advice for developers that want to deploy batteries be? Thinking about the grid specifically. Yeah, in, in terms of grid, really, uh, number one, I suppose, particularly if you're considering co-locating your battery with, with a solar development, uh, bearing in mind all the, the extra technical constraints we've discussed that the batteries put, the extra technical strain that batteries put on the grid, you need to really think about that and how that might jeopardize your solar development or trigger a lot of, of reinforcement and an extra grid cost that might not just be there if, if you were developing solely solar. So you kind of need to go in with your eyes open in that respect that 
that it isn't just as simple as as sticking a, a couple of 40 foot containers on site uh, number two would really be to well any developer is going to consider their commercial streams from an economic point of view but you need to consider the technical requirements to meet those commercial streams in the background uh, and what i'm talking about there is particularly if you're looking at fast frequency response type of commercial stream well then you need those technical requirements you need to be able to do the the fast frequency response the fast ramp rates and that then needs to feed into your grid connection strategy and you should really have a a good discussion around those technical requirements then uh, with your technical team and then number three would really be and i i've seen a lot of this if if you are purchasing a, a battery energy storage site from uh another developer and it, it's mid you know it's in the middle of the development process or early stages you really 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 need to do your due diligence around the grid connection uh, so I, i've seen this a lot where um w w you know clients have referred uh, grid offers for battery storage to us they've said oh we're thinking about buying this project uh could you take a, a quick look at it uh with respect to all the, the p28 and voltage fluctuation issues uh that we were discussing um, a lot of the time this stuff isn't mentioned on the grid offer anywhere it, it looks like a standard solar uh, pv farm grid offer you know it just has an export capacity on and, and and developers look at it and think yep great it's got some import capacity there it's got some export it's all good but when you actually sit down and model it out it's like well there's absolutely no way that that, that can ramp at any rate at all without absolutely just destroying the voltage on the dno's network way in excess of p28 and as a result, they're limited to to trickling uh, between import and export, and th there's just no way they're they're going to maximise any any sort of revenue stream through a fast frequency response type of service. Uh, so that 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 really is key as well. On to the news then. So it's been a busy week, and I do think we should start acknowledging what is going on in Ukraine. It's Thursday night now when we're recording this. It has been a bad day. It is obscene whatever your outlook in life and what is going on there it does of course have impacts on energy policy in the uk but really i feel a bit bad talking about energy when when there's tens and thousands of and millions of people suffering um so i think i speak for everyone and say that or th that's where our thoughts should be we will talk about energy um so you know the immediate geopolitical fallout of what's going on is gas prices have absolutely rocketed so they were up 50% on yesterday on the European forward markets. They've since dropped back, but they did hit an all-time high. So that that is going to feed through to higher electricity prices and higher energy prices in general in the UK. What what was your reading on that then, Brian? Yeah, it's it's just crazy at the minute uh, with prices. Um, but yeah, it, it does feel a bit weird talking about energy prices in the UK. An interesting one, though... Uh, kind of linked in closer to ukraine was um from a grid perspective the day that russia launched their invasion was actually their isolation test um so effectively ukraine uh, i think it was back maybe two three years ago had signed a deal with insoe so insoe are the the kind of the group of european transmission system operators and effectively ukraine's grid was built back uh, in the soviet area has been tied with uh, the Russian and Belarusian grids since its inception. And effectively, they had done a deal a few years ago. to They wanted to break off their grid off from Russia and connect it in with the, the European grid. Uh, and yeah, basically Thursday, the day they, they got invaded was the day where 
they were doing their isolation test, which basically means they cut their grid off from Russia and they had to prove that they could stay at a stable 50 hertz for a few days uh, to basically prove that their grid was technically viable to connect into Europe's. And little did they know the grid would be operated in isolation until this day. Operating your grid in isolation and in the middle of an invasion, um, like that's... And to be fair to the Ukrainians, they've kept they've kept their grid stable and they've kept the lights on through this whole thing with an isolated grid that's never been isolated before. Like that's that's a huge engineering achievement in the midst of what they're going through. Yeah, I mean, you know, disconnecting your grid like that because you know the this the old Soviet grid or the Russian grid they were connected to had a huge amount of inertia behind it. Um, so to come out of that, still it's still a big grid. You know, Ukraine's uh, a big country. That is technically challenging enough as it is, but to be doing that in the middle of a war where your infrastructure has been targeted and, and you have the added complexity there that they've got quite a lot of nuclear fleet and of course that's where Chernobyl is. Yeah, so hats off to those engineers who are, are keeping all that going in what is a very terrible time. So on to Centrica then. So Centrica is in the news. Centrica is usually ever in the news for bad things and actually it depends on your perspective here but Centrica is in the news because their profits are up so the profits are up in the year from 447 million last year to 948 million operating profit this year that's 112 percent increase I do think that that is going to come under a bit of pressure because we've seen Shell and the rest of them come under a lot of pressure for profits whenever energy prices are so high so it'll be interesting to see what the reaction is there. But one one interesting thing I seen in that story was that British gas customers are up 344,000, which on the face of it sounds like good news for British gas because they have, you know, they have had an attrition of customers over the last sort of five, six years. But when you look into it, they actually took on nearly 700,000 customers under the supplier of last resort scheme where Ofgem allocates customers to suppliers from suppliers at a field like Avro and, and Bulb and that. So when you put those two together, the fact it's a net loss really in my eye. So you know they they didn't really mention that, but when you do that bit of simple maths, that I find that interesting that even through the, the current time they're still losing customers. Other bit of news then was uh Instavolt have been bought by EQT. So hats off to Instavolt. They have built a very, very reliable network. I've used it myself quite a few times. So that has been um, sold now. To, I don't. There's not that much details on the actual deal in the press, but but we know it's happened. So it's good news for well, it's good news for the the people at Instavolt who made that happen. Really, other news then. So there's a report out by Delta EE here saying that the UK will be Europe's second biggest market for high powered chargers, and they define a high powered charger by any DC charger over 100 kilowatts. So, Brian, that won't surprise you, given the amount of chargers we're looking at at the minute. I mean, high power charging has just went crazy in the last sort of, well, 68 months, hasn't it? Yeah, it absolutely crazy. Um, so, yeah, the, the amount of high power charging capacity, I think we're going to see that grow substantially. Well, I say we're, you're going to see it grow in GV. Um, <laughs> let, 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 let's hope we can get some some of the charge point operators over to, to Northern Ireland and, and let's, let's hopefully see our first high-powered charger in Northern Ireland in the next year. Instavolt have declared they're going to Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland as well. So that is good news. But yes, Northern Ireland is a bit of a desert when it comes to charging, without a doubt. 
Yeah, but interestingly, that Delta E, you're saying that there's going to be 28,000 chargers installed by 2030. I mean, that's a huge amount of 100 kilowatt chargers, isn't it? Yeah, that, that is absolutely crazy. Definitely. And just as a reminder, you know, a 100 kilowatt charger would charge an IPS that's got a 90 kilowatt hour battery from 10% to 80% in about 40 minutes. So, you know, high power charging is seen as the key, especially to people who don't have off-street parking. So, you know, it's a bit of an, an enabler to the proper transition that will have to happen by 2030 when ice cars are banned. It, it's really the closest thing. You're, you're getting to that petrol pump type functionality, really, in the EV world couple of other bits of news before we go then so the t minus four capacity market so this is an auction that's held by national grid eso for capacity in t minus four so that's four years time and what happens is national grid looks at the total capacity that will be available for generation in four years time and they need to make sure there's a sufficient margin between that capacity and the predicted maximum demand in the network and you know they want that they want there to be a comfortable cushion because power stations trip, power stations come off for maintenance, so there has to be that cushion. And actually, this winter has been this this sort of skinniest margin has been in a long time. And that probably is why we've seen the strike price of 30.59 pounds per kilowatt per year. I mean, that's, that's up quite a bit on the past. That's going to cost 1.3 billion pounds. And as a reference, the capacity auction for this year cost 470 for this winter 470 million so you can see it's up quite a bit and the main thing driving that really is a lot of our power stations will have closed down so all but one of our nuclear fleet will have shut by 2028 which is staggering when you think about it now hinkley point should be online to say should be because that is the never-ending bit of string down there really but i think that's all the news we'll talk about did you find anything else interesting brian you want to let everyone know about no, I think uh, happy to wrap up there. Okay, we will wrap up then. Okay, well, thank you very much, everyone. That is the end of the podcast. I hope you did enjoy it. I hope you found it useful. Um, I'm not sure if we did manage to deliver the banter element of things, but maybe we'll do that next week. Uh, if you have any questions, we've got a new email address, so please email us on thegrid at esmartnetworks.co.uk the grid at esmartnetworks.co.uk we are also going to put this on youtube please do subscribe please do look us up on linkedin and comment thank you very much